everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Assemblymember Ash Kalra, who represents portions of Santa Clara County in the Assembly. As far as I know, he is the only former public defender in the state legislature. So welcome to the show, Assemblymember. Thank you so much for having me. Are you indeed the only uh, former public defender in the legislature? You know, I'm, I'm certainly the only one that worked in the public defender's office for 11 years. I do believe um, that there's at least one other that spent some time in the public defender's office, that's Al Morizucci. And <laughs> he also spent more time as a prosecutor, I think, subsequent to that. Well, then he doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, today we're going to talk about the Racial Justice Act. And uh, the original act uh, passed last year, um, and you called it a major step towards addressing institutionalized and implicit racial bias in our courts. Um, So I was hoping that you could kind of explain, uh, because it's it actually a little complicated, right? Uh, what what your uh, law does, uh, and then uh, we'll talk about why it's come back again. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it, it, it actually is a landmark piece of legislation, and, and primarily because it actually allows us to get to the root of systemic racism in our criminal justice system. This is how. Uh, so without getting too much into the legal uh, weeds of it, it overturns for the purposes of our state, at least, um, a United States Supreme Court case, McCleskey v. Kemp, uh, 34 years ago uh, in Georgia. Uh, the, the, it was a 1987 case. There was a, a, a death penalty case, a black defendant. The defense was able to show to the satisfaction of the court, including the, the satisfaction of the Supreme Court justices, that race did play a role in the likelihood that the defendant got sentenced to death. However, because they couldn't show intentional racism in that case, basically they said there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and But they did also say that states could um, you know, opt to pass legislation if they wanted to uh, you know, do something stronger than what the court was willing to do, which is really not much at all. Uh, and there actually are a couple states, North Carolina and Mississippi, that have racial justice acts just for death penalty cases. However, the Racial Justice Act that we passed last year applies to every criminal case um, that, and every, every case um, that was adjudicated subsequent to this January, it's January 1st, 2021, 
And what it says that it allows the accused to challenge the arrest, you know, conduct during a trial, a conviction, and even sentencing uh, based upon racial bias and not just explicit intentional bias. I mean, you rarely, that's rarely how racism, you know, presents itself, especially these days, but uh, systemic bias, implicit bias. So they can show that in a, in a particular county, um, if a black man is four times more likely to get a prison sentence for a similar uh, conviction uh, on similar charges as a white man, the defense attorney has the opportunity to at least challenge that sentence. Now, the person still may very well get, uh, they're still convicted, they'll still get a sentence, but hopefully what we'll see is more equity in the outcomes. Uh, you can have a case where maybe in a particular jurisdiction, 95% um, of those that are charged with gang enhancements for auto burglary, for example, are Latino. And uh, you can have a client or a, a, a defendant has their uh, attorney challenge it and the judge can look at it and they can strike the enhancement if they feel that there was that, that race played a role in that enhancement being applied. Now the person still gets convicted of auto burglary, they serve their time, but it creates more equity in the system. Uh, and that's what's so significant about the Racial Justice Act. It allows us to go to the root cause of racism in our system because a lot of it is so, it, it's implicit, it's not conscious all the time. And that's why district attorneys are very defensive when it comes to the Racial Justice Act, because they say, well, we're not racist. Well, your outcomes show that you are, or your, the outcomes show that you are creating racist outcomes. It doesn't matter whether you believe you're racist or not, the outcomes you are creating are certainly racialized. And so um, this year we introduced AB 256, because as I said, uh, the Racial Justice Act only applies to cases adjudicated January 1st, 2021 going forward. And we actually had to make a very tough decision last year as the, as the, the um, bill was going through the legislature uh, to, to either hold the bill or to get rid of all retroactivity. We decided to get rid of the retroactivity so the bill can move forward, it got signed into law. But when we did that, we said, we're not gonna leave anyone behind. So AB 256, the Racial Justice Act for All makes the Racial Justice Act retroactive so that those that are current, that have already been convicted, maybe they're, they're still they're serving their time now or previously served their time, they will also have the opportunity to challenge uh, the conviction or the sentence, what have you, based upon racial bias. So let me ask you this, because um, you know one of the big areas that you see uh, racial bias in the system, and you mentioned gang enhancements, which is a huge one, um, and uh, uh, hopefully getting dealt with a little bit with uh, 333. Uh, but, you know, drug offenses are really fascinating because it, it's one area where you clearly see at the very least equity in terms of whites, blacks, uh, people of color, in terms of drug usage and <laughs> drug sales. But then when it gets to actual prosecutions um, and uh, off the top of my head, I'm going to say it's like six to one and maybe worse uh, in, uh, in, in terms of blacks and, and brown people getting charged and prosecuted for drug offenses versus whites. So that being the case, how would your uh, bill or this, this law now um, change that? Well, you, you actually absolutely identified one area 
where race clearly plays a role and has for decades. And in fact, it's an area that uh, probably my greatest expertise in terms of my time in the public defender's office, because out of my 11 years, I spent about five and a half years off and on in drug treatment court. And so I absolutely saw firsthand, um, particularly black defendants, young black men, and the kinds of sentences that they were being given, uh, the drug sales priors, of course, we've you know, done some work in that regard there at least, but there's no doubt that there is a clear racial distinction in how people are treated when it comes to drug crimes. And absolutely, I, I, oh, I wish I had uh, the Racial Justice Act uh, in general, but particularly when it comes to drug cases when I was practicing, because um, I think it'll, this will provide the opportunity for us to really dig deep and, and kind of put the mirror up to ourselves as a system and say, what have we done in terms of locking up generations of young black and brown, particularly men um, for offenses and for crimes um, that, that have clearly been designed in, in a way to target them. And so there's no doubt that the Racial Justice Act will help us in the healing process uh, by making sure that we don't continue to repeat um, egregious mistakes of the past. So, you know, you spent 11 years as a public defender. I've spent the last 12 years in courtrooms um, reporting on court cases. And one thing I see all the time is that judges don't throw stuff out. Um, you know, you can have cases where uh, it's pretty clear, at least to me, uh, that there should be motions to suppress that are granted and they're rarely granted. Is this going to become another area where the judges are, are just going to go, yeah, I can kind of see that, but I'm not doing anything. It's possible. I mean, look, this is the interesting aspect about this is that I see it a little differently, although I think you're correct, especially in the short term, um, but there may be this routine and it just becomes a, a part of your motions in limine where you just, uh, in your pretrial motions, where you just, it becomes second nature. Okay, we're going to contest the arrest based on race and then the sentencing and what have you. But um, I, I think that what, what's unique here, what we have an opportunity are two things. One is that it'll be really interesting to see the appeals because it's gonna be the appellate courts and the Supreme Court in our state that's truly gonna to start to define this piece of legislation for appropriate interpretation um, by, by um, Superior Court judges. But more importantly, this is really about behavior change. Uh, you know, if police departments are called to question the manner in which they're arresting individuals, if DAs are being called to question in, in how they're prosecuting, I really believe that it will lead to behavior change because if you talk to younger, police officers, DAs, and even judges, I, there has at least begun a shift where when I've talked to you know officers that are younger and explained to them the Racial Justice Act, and they're like, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, when I talk to some DAs that are younger DAs, newer DAs, they, they have no problem with it. It's more the institutionalized folks that have been part of this, of this institutionalized system that can't fathom you know, the, the, the having to account for race. And so I, maybe I'm being a little Pollyannish and optimistic, but I do believe that there's an opportunity to create a generational shift and a generational change. We already see it with some of our progressive prosecutors, but I think that this piece of legislation provides a tool and an opportunity for law enforcement 
for district attorneys, for judges themselves, and even public defenders and the defense counsel to put a mirror up to ourselves and to say, okay, how have I been acting? As a defense attorney, have I been treating my clients differently based on race? Because that question needs to be asked too. As a prosecutor, as a judge, I, I think that there's an opportunity for reflection. Uh, it's not just a matter of calling out racism. It's a matter of recognizing that it, that it exists even when we don't um, acknowledge it and, and maybe couldn't see it. Hopefully it'll open the eyes of those that are engaged in our system. I mean, one problem that I also see is you don't see a lot of all white juries these days, but you see what I would call, you know, kind of the token uh, person of color on the jury, but it's mostly white. Uh, and I'm not putting down, you know, the people of color on there. Uh, but, you know, you may have eight or nine white people and then a few people of color thrown in there. So, you know, I kind of understand what you're saying that a lot of the younger prosecutors don't have a problem with this, but that's not how they practice law. Uh, they practice law by excluding people of color uh, from these juries and, and for various reasons. Um, and as you know, like Batson is not nearly strong enough uh, to uh, protect uh, minority jurors. Uh, so, so you're, uh, I, I keep calling it your, but it, it's the new law really, um, you know, is, is supposed to guard against that. But what, what's the process by which uh, somebody would say, hey, wait a second, you've struck all the black jurors here. Well, I mean, it's a similar process to a Batson challenge, except that I think there's a little bit more teeth to it, especially given Dr. Weber's legislation that um, would require a greater articulation um, as to the, the excusing of jurors. But I think ultimately, um, you know, there is going to be um, a need um, for us to do more to get a more diverse jury pool. There is legislation, of course, that, that helped in that regard. But absolutely, I've been, you know, I've I've seen and, and you know seen it happen in trials I've been engaged with. Um, but I do want to um, point out Dr. Weber's bill um, because that one does have greater. And I'm trying to remember. You probably see me trying to trying to think about it. But um, the reality is that there is stronger. Um, there is a stronger set of rules to combat um, kind of the whitewashing of the jury box. Uh, and so um, that is something that uh, it was Assembly Bill 3070. Uh, take a closer look, uh, look at that because um, it will, it, it replaces the intentionality requirement with an objective standard that tests instead for the existence of implicit or unconscious bias in the elimination of a juror. Uh, and so, um, you know, it, it really, it also deals with the aspect of using race neutral reasons um, as well. Um, and the, the, the when, when right now when someone's exercising, for example, a peremptory challenge, they're required to give an explanation for the strike. They just have to offer a race neutral reason. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's, it's really hard to, it's really easy to do that, right? Um, and so the, the reality is that we, we have to go beyond that. 
Um, and so there is, look at AB 3070 and see that there's going to be more than simply, um, you know, finding some race neutral reason that um, we're gonna look at the data uh, to see if there's bias as well that's being created and put the onus on the system to, to fix it. Sorry, I was kind of rambling a little bit, but I was trying to remember and was looking up really quickly a little bit about Dr. Weber's bill, but take a look at it because it's even stronger than my legislation. My bill in fact said, it does apply to jury selection unless that other bill, AB 3070 passed, that takes precedence. So it's even stronger language. So for the purpose of your legislation, how do you prove that bias exists or is that really the proof? I mean, because it's obvious, you know, if you look at statistics that there's a real problem with inequity in the system, but, you know, the problem has always been trying to prove that. So, so where does it set that bar? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that that's where, you know, it's, it's not a perfect science, but that's where expert witness, expert testimony will come into play. I think there is now a broad range of academics uh, that have studied um, criminal jurisprudence that can speak to bias and speak to the impacts of bias. And so if you lay forth a set of facts, um, they can offer their expert opinion as to whether race played a role. And then a judge will have to make a determination. And so I think that um, at some point through those um, th through those judgments and how those judgments are articulated, it will create structure to this new area of jurisprudence. Uh, that's usually how landmark legislation or landmark court cases uh, evolve. And so we're going to need more of that guidance moving forward. And that's why I'm very excited about the fact that it, the Racial Justice Act is already being argued in courts right now. And um, even if denied, they're being appealed. And so the process that is necessary to create the structure and the definitions and the parameters around how much bias <laughs> is enough um, to throw out a case or, or to reduce a sentence or to strike an enhancement. I think that that's, that structure is already being developed as we speak. And then in terms of the look back mechanism uh, for, for this year's legislation, I mean, how's that gonna work? Um, are they uh, gonna, uh, you know, present to the court statistics um, or, or what, what's going to happen with that? Sure. I mean, they can, they can present statistics and expert testimony, you know, the death penalty cases, they can show that, look, you know, the race played, um, played a, a role in me getting the death penalty. Uh, and I think, um, you know, they'll, they'll have to articulate a case. It's not just because, you know, I'm Asian American or just because someone's African American, that by itself is not grounds to overthrow a case. You've got to, there's got to be some prima facie showing. Some facts have to be articulated as to why race played a role and data will be a key component of that. Uh, no doubt about it. So have you written this so that like kind of the McCluskey standard would actually be sufficient to overturn a verdict? Well, the yes, yes, and no, in that yes, it was written to really create a, a McCluskey standard that is actually um, 
where there's actually, you can actually litigate it in a way that's, you know, articulable and practical and ends with, with results that achieve the rooting out of this um, implicit biases that exist. And so the McCleskey in itself was identified a standard, but what the problem was, it didn't allow the tools necessary to be able to prove that standard. And so I think that there is certainly, this is the um, evolution um, in terms of actually allowing the tools to meet a standard of racial bias. Um, and, and what do you, uh, how do you see the prospects of your second piece of legislation this term? Uh, does it seem likely that it's gonna be able to pass? I hope so, I think so. Um, you know, we, we are likely to put forth um, some amendments, um, but the amendments, you know, we're, we're not seeking, you know, certainly not seeking to exclude um, any particular groups um, from retroactivity, but there may be a phasing in process where those that are currently incarcerated or those that are in for life or death penalty kind of move to the front of the line, given the gravity and, and the, the, the uh, of the case, as well as the nature of the sentence that they received. Uh, so we're looking, at, we're looking at phasing it in an appropriate way, but not excluding individuals. And then, you know, one of the things that anyone who's read into the system, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, but I'm going to throw this out there for the people listening who might not be. So if you are a black or brown person, you're basically disadvantaged at every single stage of the criminal system. Uh, so you're more likely to be arrested. Uh, you're more likely to be charged once you're arrested. You're, uh, you're more likely to face harsher charges. You're more likely to be convicted. Uh, you're more likely to serve time. Uh, you're more likely to serve a longer period of time. Um, and it's kind of interesting when I map this out that, you know, your legislation kind of hits in the middle of that equation. Um, is that about right? Somewhat. I mean, I, I think the legislation hits every piece of it. The, pro the problem is that it, it's, I mean, the, the problem when you're dealing with a, with a systemic type of issue like this is that it's really challenging to identify, okay, this is where the systemic racism starts to play a role and this is where it stops playing a role. There's no point where it, it isn't playing a role. It's playing a role in an entire process. So what we're hoping is that with this legislation, we can at least reduce the impacts of that systemic racism. Is it gonna be completely eliminated? No, because to your point, you know, you're still gonna see higher percentage of folks being arrested or, and, and higher conviction rates, but can we minimize the impact of, of race on the system? I, absolutely. And I think that until, until we, you know, or, or as we continue to work on other mechanisms, like you know, some of the other things we're doing on you know, getting rid of the drug sales prior and the jury selection legislation and working on other enhancements, they are all aspects as well of reducing the, the impact of race on the criminal justice system. The unique aspect about this, this isn't um, getting rid of an enhancement or a sentence, what have you, which is very kind of like binary. 
this is actually taking a deeper look into ourselves in our system and using that deeper look to create a semblance of justice. I mean, it seems like one of the big issues that, you know, it gets into policing, but where police put the resources makes a huge difference in kind of the start of that process. And, uh, you know, and then you could go back further and go, well, it, it, it's concentrated poverty and lack of education and all, all sorts of other things, which I, I definitely agree with. But in terms of policing itself, you know, they, you know where they deploy the police resources, that's not something that uh, this legislation can deal with, right? No, but, you know, there, there, there are other aspects of the movement that are dealing with that. Uh, I think the, the way that this has impact on policing is, uh, and that could have an impact on the way resources are spent, is that if, again, by putting that mirror up, by looking at the data, by seeing cases that are being tossed or, you know, charges, you know, certain enhancements being stricken because of the conduct of a police department, that, that, will, that will hopefully force self-reflection. And that very well may change, you know, how resources are spent or the manner in, in, in which they're spent or the, um, the manner in which uh, policies are effectuated in a police department. So, um, you know, I, I think it can, it, it can have an impact. Uh, I think it definitely can have an impact on behavior and behavior can have an impact on, on where you put your resources. Do you see this as mostly a systemic problem at this point? And, and can you, do you have a good definition of what a systemic problem is? Because I, I swear I spend half my days trying to explain to people the difference between systemic racism and, and kind of explicit racism. So the, um, the, the, you know, the way I see it is that systemic is something that's built into the system. And, and many in many cases built in over many, many years, many decades, many generations. Our policing system, our criminal justice system is baked into our system of slavery and, and it's rooted in that. And so if I could snap my finger right now and do the impossible and make sure that, you know, ensure that everyone that's involved in our criminal justice system from the police to the attorneys, to the judges, DAs, everyone didn't have a racist bone in their body, outcomes would still be racist because the system itself has these biases built into it. And so that's why, you know, it's really important that we focus on the systemic issues and recognize people may get defensive because they, they will say, I'm a police officer, I'm not racist, I'm a Well, yeah, but you know, if you're a police officer that and a district attorney that is arresting or enforcing or prosecuting drug crimes based upon the way our drug enforcement system is set up, you are perpetuating systemic racist bias. Well, racial bias. It doesn't mean you're doing it intentionally. It doesn't mean you're doing it because you're racist, but the system as it's designed um, is set up that way. And that's why we had to break down that system. Yeah, I think you explained that really well. Um, so final question, um, you know, aside from the Racial Justice Act, what do you see as kind of the biggest need that California needs to do? Uh, in terms of criminal justice reform? Well, I, I think that we have to change the way that we punish. Uh, I, I think that, you know, putting people in prisons and jails and 
um, in, in, in oftentimes deplorable conditions um, doesn't serve us well as a state. It doesn't serve, it doesn't serve the cause of public safety well. It may feel like you're creating a safer community, but it's not in fact what you're doing. And so I think what we have to do is recognize that in order to make us safer, we have to heal those that are come into contact in our criminal justice system, whether they're a defendant, a victim, we, we have to heal all of them. Oftentimes victims today become, you know, defendants later. I mean, so many of my, so, so many of the clients I represented that were accused of or convicted of violent crimes, they were abused brutally when they were younger in different forms. Um, and, and they lived with a lot of trauma growing up. So we have to, if we don't heal the individual and, and look at people in a non-judgmental way, understanding that there are certain conduct that, that is judged and, and needs to be accounted for, but the reality is we're, we're not gonna create a safer society um, by responding to violence with more violence. Uh, we have to respond to acts of violence acts of anger, of acts of acting out with an embrace. Uh, it's much harder to do uh, than to say, but it's the hard work that will lead us to a safer community, a more loving community, and one that sees the dignity of everyone, regardless of what their worst action was. Yeah, and I think that's that's a point that gets lost is that that nexus between uh, people that are committing crimes now and people that were victims of crimes uh, at an earlier point of life. And that, that connection definitely pushes this forward. Well, I wanna thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy day to uh, come on here and talk about your great legislation. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for highlighting really important issues in, in our state. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. So that's uh, Assembly Member Ash Kalra. Uh, he represents portions of Santa Clara, including San Jose in the State Assembly, former public defender, and uh, the author of the California Racial Justice Act. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.